Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you? Better than you. <laughs> wow, it was a week last week. Well, let's start by saying everybody is okay now. Yes, yes, that's very, very true. So last week... I will tell you already that this week's interview was very technically difficult to put together because when it happened, computers kept freezing. We had to get people off and on again. So it was a lot of stringing parts together. And then when we taped, we also had technical issues. So there was a lot of extra editing to be done to fix that. And I was taking a long, a lot longer than I meant it to take. So I was still working on the episode and had a whole bunch of other deadlines for work happen. And then on Friday, I went to lunch with somebody at a Chinese restaurant. And did you have this stewed eggplant dish in the dining hall at Beijing at all? I did not. Okay, because we didn't always have meals together. And I didn't see it very often during the Paralympics. I only had it a couple times. It's like a stewed eggplant with some other vegetables, but it was very tasty. And a friend and I went to lunch and we went to this place here in Cleveland that has Beijing specialties on the menu as a whole section. I know. And they had this eggplant dish and it was even better because it was fresh because the eggplant one in Beijing was in the cafeteria line. So it was a little under the warming oven, but it was still very good. So I had this wonderful eggplant dish live in life. And all of a sudden I'm looking at the menu board behind her and I start seeing these squiggly lines in my vision. And I already have pretty bad vision anyway. I'm very, very nearsighted. History of eye problems in my family. So I was internally freaking out because I didn't want to freak out in front of her. And started seeing all these squiggly lines with kind of black on the top of the line and red underneath the line. And then I started seeing kind of a halo effect. And then my right eye got a lot of pressure in it and started to get a lot of pain. And I thought, oh my gosh, my retinas are detaching. This cannot end well. So finish lunch, get outside, the squiggly lines go away. Headache in the eye still happens. So we get to the eye doctor, emergency eye doctor visit. Retina looks fine. That's good. They said, you just had an ocular migraine. Never had one of these before. Nobody knows why they happen. Last for about 20 minutes or so, and then they just kind of disappear. So the problem was with this, I had to have my eyes dilated, and the dilation takes hours and hours to wear off in me. So I could not really look at a computer at all, and that just meant no show last week. But we're okay now. Okay, I just I, there's so many things to the story that we're going to discuss when the show is over. But here's the one thing I'm going to point out. <laughs> you could have been having a stroke. And your first concern is you don't want to freak out in front of somebody else <laughs> and cause well, some stress. Well, I think if I'm having a stroke, well, I don't know. I mean, I would think somebody might notice I'd be stroking out. <laughs> but you'd be so concerned 
about everything being okay for everybody else that we would find you in the street and be like, oh, Jill just collapsed on the sidewalk. (laughs) So next time, alert your dining guest because I'm sure she would want to know if you were about to collapse that the eggplant was so good that it killed you. Eggplant was so good, but it would never kill me because an eggplant dish would never kill anyone unless I guess you're allergic to eggplant. But point taken, duly noted. But now I know what to look for, so that's okay. But on a happier note, yes, we got a good interview this week. We have a great interview with a lovely person. We're talking with Louise Sugden, who is a para power lifter. She began powerlifting in 2017 after a long and illustrious career as a wheelchair basketball player. She competed in that sport for Team GB at the Paralympics in 2008 and 2012. And after only nine months as a para powerlifter, she won a silver medal at the 2018 Commonwealth Games. At the Tokyo Paralympics last year, Louise won the bronze medal in the women's powerlifting under 86 kilos category. We spoke to her about how para powerlifting works and her journey in the sport. Take a listen. Louise, thank you so much for joining us. First off, para powerlifting, we're just going to start at the basics. So the goal of the sport is pretty easy. Lift the most weight possible in three tries, correct? Yep, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Summarize. They do make it a little bit more difficult with the rules. So you have to pause the bar on your chest and you always have to lock out together. There have been a couple of rule changes recently, but essentially that's, that's the, the basics. The basic. So this is a bench press and you're lying down. When you lie on the bench, where do you want to physically place your body? So when I'm setting up on the bench, I like to have my eyes underneath the bar. And then when I'm pressing, because of the arch that I have, I like to bring the bar down to just below my boobs. And that's because I have quite a wide grip. The width of your grip will actually determine where you want to bring a bar to. So it's a preference thing, but also there's a little bit of science to it. Okay, so the arch, your back will arch. Is that that what you're talking about? Yeah, I don't have a huge arch, partly due to my disability. I just can't maintain it. But I I do what I can because that helps you retract your shoulder blades, which keeps your shoulders in a safer position um, whilst benching. And it means that you have to press slightly less distance. Oh, okay, That's interesting. I had not realized that mechanics put that back. Grip. (laughs) It's back in my brain because we'll get back to that, too. So grip. Is that a personal preference? Does that also depend on how broad your shoulders are or where is it safest to grip? I think there is some preference to it. I have always had quite a wide grip. I have quite wide shoulders. Um, That definitely will make a difference to you. But I know that, for example, some people might have a recurring issue if they have a wider grip, whereas a narrower grip doesn't bring the symptoms on of the issue that they have. So a bit of a preference thing. It's also what you practice. So if you practice a narrower grip, you're going to be better at a narrower grip. Does where you grip the bar help determine how much weight you can put on? Or is it just like, well, my muscles like it when it's narrower versus my muscles like it when it's wider or in my shoulders? It depends what muscles are more developed in you. And, and that's a practice thing. So like a narrower grip will use more triceps 
whereas a wider grip will use more pecs. So it depends what muscles are more developed in you as an individual. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So if you end up, if you're a person that has stronger pecs, you want a stronger or wider grip to leverage that, the better part of your body and vice versa. If you have something else, a different part of your body that's more stronger. Yeah. And we will, we will work multiple different grips to develop other areas but majority of the work we do will be in our competition formal grip oh that's interesting we're still lying on the bench or getting to lie on the bench (laughs) (laughs) and and as you said this is where I like the bar to end up and I would imagine everybody has their own preference yeah but it's something that I've worked on over the last couple of years is finding that place where I can get a really good pause on my chest and it's also a good position in relation to where my body is and where I press well from. Okay. So I practice thing a little bit. <laughs> Are there times where it's just like, ow, I, I feel like this is not a good position. Like I can feel that when I bench press stuff and like, oh, this is not a good position I put my body in. Yeah, yeah. There'll definitely be certain positions and you'll be like, no, that felt wrong. So <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just got to go with what you feel. <laughs> now, when you compete, you strap yourself to the bench. Does that provide stability? Yeah, for me, it definitely does. I am a paraplegic. I have no use of my legs, no ability to kind of brace through them. So the straps that hold me to the bench just give me that extra stability that I just don't have because of my disability. Do they have regulations around strapping? It's not allowed to be any higher than your hip. It's not allowed to be on your foot I believe that it's it used to not be allowed to be over your knee joint but I think that's changed recently why would any of those be an advantage um I think if you were to come higher up your body so like above hip it would definitely give more stability to people and I think it's just a way of standardizing across all the competitors okay how heavy is the bar 20 kilos. 20 kilos. Okay. So walk us through a lift. You get yourself on the bench, then what? Get myself on the bench, line myself up where I normally line up on the bench, lay down, get myself into my body position with my arch, which (laughs) is probably not what most people call an arch, but I try. (laughs) Um, Set my grip up on the bar and then normally I'll have someone pass the bar to me because another thing with my disability I I just really struggle to get it off the racks so someone will pass the bar and then just take a breath brace bring the bar down to chest and then give it everything to get it back up to arm's length how long do you have to hold it so in competition you'll be given a start command and then once it's on your chest normally a coach will call a drive call and then you have to wait until you're given the rack command to get it back in the rack. I know that in able-bodied bench the referee will also give the drive command so it's a little bit different for us. That's interesting. What does a successful lift look like? It, It just looks very controlled I think is the best way to describe it. The main criteria is that you're in control of the bar at all times within the lift So you're controlling it to your chest and you're controlling the press. So, for example, if one arm is way ahead of the other, you're not fully in control of the lift or that they deem that you're not. You have to have your elbows locking out together. So 
I think control and smooth press is a really good way to to differentiate. Do you use hand grips or wrist wraps? Uh, I use wrist wraps. Okay. What do those do? So from all my years of basketball, my wrists are pretty knackered. So they just give a little bit more support when you've got such heavy weights. What did wheelchair basketball do to your wrists? Quite as strong as they used to be. And so I use the wrist wraps to just support them while I'm lifting. Okay. Chalk. Do you use it? Where do you place it? How does it help? So I use chalk when my hands get a bit sweaty. If it's a particularly hot or when I get up to big weights, I don't want my hands slipping on the bar. So I tend to put it just on my hands rather than all over the bar and everything. Some people use it in other ways. I'm kind of a minimal user, to be honest. What is the strategy to choosing how much weight you put on the bar at any given point in the competition? So obviously you'll have an idea of where you are in terms of what weight you can lift, uh, that kind of thing. I will normally go for something that's pretty comfortable for my first lift. And then depending on the other competitors, we'll kind of determine what your next lift will be. And you might change what you're planning on lifting on depending on what other people have put on the bar. Depends what your goals for the competition are and what. I mean, your chances are of being on that podium. So that will determine somewhat what you attempt to lift. And then in the back room, are you allowed to change that as you see? Like, do you have to submit, this is the weight I'm going to do next. And then as other competitors go, you can see what they lift and swap that out? So you... In, in power powerlifting, you go in starting weight order. You have to submit that and you can only make changes up to five minutes before the first lift. The second lift, once you put it in, you can't change. So the second round. So it's done in rounds. Um, and then the third lift, you can change um, a number of times. I think it's a limited number of times. To be honest with you, that's what I leave my coaches to deal with. I don't really think about that <laughs> side of things. I so, trust them completely with the decisions. Wait, do you ever know, like, not, do they tell you what you're going to lift ahead of time? And then, or do they just like get on the bench, Louise, you're going to punt. We're not even going to tell you what you're lifting today. Sometimes, like, I, I always need to know, but I do know that some people actually prefer not knowing and just completely trust that their coaches know what they're doing. I'm a bit of a control freak, so I absolutely have to know what's on the bar <laughs> and what I'm attempting. But I, I've been in the situation quite a few times where I'm lifting stuff in competition that I've never even attempted in training. So that's quite a daunting prospect. <laughs> I wondered that because I, I, what I'm curious about also is how you improve and what you do in the gym but also like when you're in competition do you have extra adrenaline that maybe helps do some of these lifts or like how what do you do for your mindset especially when there's a weight that you haven't tried before to be honest I think the only way to deal with that is to not actually think about the weight just the process about what you do how you press it what you need to focus on to get it pressed I mean, you'll have a feel on the day as to how warm up went, um, how your preparation's gone. So you'll know whether 
stuff's within your capability or not even if you've not done it in training I think you just have an idea from the amount of training that you've done so I think it's just a confidence thing and going out there and wanting to beat people (laughs) (laughs) what do you do to build confidence for me that comes from training and working on technique and just generally any so I find working on technique really works for my confidence because then I can go out there and be like well technically I'm very good so get the weight on the bar and I'll use that skill that I've got and do what I can with it me that that's the the biggest thing I think having a great build up obviously will help and being confident in the weights that you've got or the weights you've done and the, the the preparation that you've done is also really big for confidence obviously it's not always the case you don't always have a good build up so you kind of just have to focus on stuff that is going well and the stuff that you can take confidence from what do you do to work on technique in in training i'm always working on technique so for me pause is the most difficult bit because of my disability i i'm a little bit unsteady and then every now and again i'll like dip to one side that kind of thing so that's the bit that i work on probably more often than anything else and it's just a repetition thing and then making a kind of mental note of how a good rep feels what are some of the things you work on to steady that dip do you have use of all of your abdominals majority I've done quite a lot of work like core work over the years and it has made a big difference to that technical element it's something that I'm gonna have to work on for the entire time I'm powerlifting because my core is quite abysmal but I am trying to make it better and uh, make improvements in that area and I know how fun setups are. They are not. They're not fun. Core work is not fun. <laughs> I absolutely cannot do a setup. Oh. Um, <laughs> well, so what do you do for core work? So I do like our own little variation of a paloff press. So it's more rotational stuff that benefits for me. And I basically have to strap myself to the bench because otherwise I just don't get any benefit from it. And that's something that we've developed over the years to try and figure out how to to get core work in that's actually productive rather than just doing it for the sake of doing it. Interesting. That's really interesting. In in a way, if I was a coach, that would be an interesting challenge to try to figure that out. You know what I mean? I don't know if it's interesting <laughs> for you to figure it out just because <laughs> I would imagine it would be frustrating to not know what or go through a whole bunch of stuff and have to try to find out what works. Yeah, my coach does enjoy that kind of stuff. So I think uh, it got his brain working. (laughs) We found a good solution. So, How do you get stronger to be able to add more weight to the bar? Like what are the things you do? So everyone thinks that to bench big, you've got to just bench. But actually there's a lot of, I do a lot of back work as well because your back, you just need to be balanced as much as possible. So there's there's a lot of accessory work, probably a lot more than I'd like, but <laughs> I do it because it makes me a better athlete. I don't enjoy it, but I do it. But I think the the way to progress is, well, most importantly, I think is consistency. 
getting in, doing sessions, all the sessions that you're required to do by your coach or whoever. But when you're in those sessions, always try and do something a bit better than last time. Because if you're constantly doing something a little bit better, like an extra kilo on the bar or pressing the bar faster, even that is indication of progress. And I think that's something that a lot of people will go to the gym and they'll like tick things off and they'll be like, okay, I've done it. But actually, if you are constantly trying to improve something just a little bit, then you will get stronger just from doing the work. When you finish a lift, what do your muscles feel like? Oh, I mean, it depends on the lift and it depends how hard it was. Um, There have been times where I've done an absolute grinder of a rep and I've just had to lay there for maybe five, six seconds just to compose myself before I could sit back up again because like, you just put everything into it. And yeah, it's just a full body <laughs> exhaustion sometimes <laughs> that I feel. And then there'll be other, other lifts where I'll be like, well, that moved really well. Okay, great. So <laughs> depends on the scenario. Okay. How long is a training session usually for you? My training sessions are normally two to three hours. Okay. But being a powerlifter, my rest periods are generous, let's say. <laughs> well, I would I mean, you need recovery time, obviously. Yeah. Between bench press exercises will normally take four to six minutes. Oh, okay. Um, to give you... It's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, like, accessory stuff will be, like, two or three minutes. So okay. you obviously want to try and get as much out of your bench stuff, which is why you take the slightly longer rest. So you have very strong back, shoulders, chest. How hard is it to find clothes? Incredibly difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Because nobody caters for somebody with shoulders like mine. 90% of the time I end up in men's clothes, which I hate. But every now and again, you'll find a brand that actually can cater What I do find is that I normally have to go so big for my shoulders that it's baggy everywhere else, but at least it fits my shoulders. Long sleeve tops, night dress, like nice dressy tops. Absolutely not. They're always cutting off my arms. (laughs) I normally go for vest tops. That's generally my uh, safe bet. You were a wheelchair basketball player. What did you like about wheelchair basketball? Besides the fact that it's cool. That's what what we learned from Tokyo. It's really cool. (laughs) Yeah, I think I started playing it because I was 13 years old and and my friends played and it was cool. But wheelchair basketball for me just gave me this freedom that I didn't get in everyday life. It was fast. It was skillful. And I I just really enjoyed being on the basketball court and spending a lot of time with friends that were on the team, that kind of thing. It was, um, yeah, it was just a really, really enjoyable game for me. And you got to go to two Paralympics as a wheelchair basketball athlete. What were those experiences like? So I think the first Paralympics I went to, it was the first time I'd really had any kind of responsibility within the team. So it was quite overwhelming for me. And I think maybe a little bit of a blur, very enjoyable blur. I did enjoy it. I think, I mean, London was just as a home games was just completely I I don't know that it'll ever be topped the atmosphere as an English or a GB athlete was just phenomenal and 
yeah, London was just a really, really special experience. Like the basketball, not so great, but just the crowd and the whole experience was amazing. What was Tokyo like? Was it part of the goal when you when you switched to powerlifting? It was 2017, so you had a few mm. years. But how? I mean, how long does it take to develop in the sport? And did it help that you were already an elite athlete? It definitely helps that I was already an elite athlete. I started from a 77 and a half kilo bench press, so it's already a really good bench press. And that's from all my years of training in the gym when I play basketball. Tokyo, it being delayed by a year probably did help me in some ways because I was very new to the sport. And I did say in maybe 2019, maybe 2018, that I wanted to medal at the Paralympic Games. And my coach kind of looked at me and went, that's a big goal. No one's achieved that in one cycle. And I was like, I need the big goal. Like, that's what gets me excited is that ridiculous goal. And having that extra year, it was really tough, really tough at times. But it gave me more time to get stronger. And I think it was a blessing and a curse. But it was it was a fantastic Games and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I wasn't expecting to enjoy it. I was worried that it was just going to be completely overshadowed by all the COVID stuff. How did they make it not so COVID-y? I mean, it was very COVID-y. We were, <laughs> we were in a bubble and there was a lot of mask wearing, but it wasn't as restrictive as I was expecting it to be. I was expecting it to be, you can stay in your apartments, you can do this. But essentially, as long as you had a mask on, you could be out of your apartment. You could um, socialize with other people at a distance. So it was very, but I think it was a really good balance between still allowing the athlete experience and keeping people safe. How are the cardboard beds? <laughs> um, interesting. <laughs> I, uh, I'm i really fussy when it comes to beds. And they had these little, you could move about the mattresses mm -hmm. to make them in a different order. And then there were different firmness. And I was like, this is just too complicated. I didn't really understand it, to be <laughs> honest with you. Um, they were fine. They were fine. I slept quite well by the end of it. But initially, I did struggle. <laughs> Yeah, I was in Japan once and, and we were on re really hard beds in Western hotel, quote unquote, Western hotels, and then <laughs> moved over to futons on the floor. And that was that was took a while for my back to adjust <laughs> to that. But it did. In the run up to Tokyo, how much competition did you have? Very little. <laughs> because, and, and I asked that because your your bronze medal winning lift would have been a Paralympic record. And just people were lifting stuff like crazy at Tokyo, it seemed like. the Yeah, the standard in, in the women's competition especially, from Rio to Tokyo, just absolutely skyrocketed. And my lift would have probably got me a silver or a gold in Rio. So it just shows you how the standards improved over the last couple of years. And it's fantastic to see women just getting 
confident, being strong makes my life a bit harder. But <laughs> I, I was going to say, it's good. As, as you, well, we're of a certain age, but as you age, like how much more difficult is it this quad to stay? Are you are you going to try for Paris? I'm, I'm going to pr- definitely try for Paris. Okay. I think that because I've not been in this sport for very long, there's still progress that I can make. And I think it's to do with, well, I was always told it's to do with training age. So my training age in para powerlifting is actually quite young. So there's more progress that I can still make. But I do say to my coach sometimes that he's got to stop coaching me like I'm a 20-year-old because my body can't cope with this. I'm nearly 40, can't be doing with it. (laughs) Do you find as you are getting older that it's tougher? Or do you, you, well, I mean, training, the training age bit is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's any science behind that, but (laughs) there's a bit of a theory there, I guess. (laughs) Okay, so do you have terrible twos when you're in training? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I do find as an older athlete that my body just hurts more, I think. So there's definitely more time with the physio than the younger athletes. But yeah, I mean... I couldn't have imagined that my body would have taken to this sport like it has. It's just been an absolutely insane five years, to be completely honest with you. We feel the same way about our show. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how long we've been doing this. <laughs> Questions, Allison? Well, I'm always interested in injuries. So what's powerlifting to me, the injury would be I drop it on my head. But for someone who actually knows what they're doing, what are the injuries you got to worry about? I definitely try not to drop it on my head. I did a school visit recently and I I was asked multiple times, what happens if you drop it on you? Well, I train really hard so that I don't drop it on me. (laughs) I mean, I haven't, touch wood, had these issues, but um, pecs are a big one um, just because the amount of strain that you put them through for me I actually get a lot of nerve pain and I think that's probably from my basketball days maybe a lot of whiplash that went undiagnosed (laughs) but nerve pain's a really big one for me um and every now and again back like upper back middle back just yeah makes getting into my body position really difficult what's the reaction of people around you when you Talk about being a power lifter. Well, the first question is always, what can you bench? And then when I tell them I can bench 130 kilos, they're like, oh, wow, that's more than I weigh. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm like third in the world. So you'd want to think that I could lift a good amount. <laughs> they also, I've also been asked, like, if I say I can lift 130, they're like pounds. I'm like, no, kilos. So, yeah, I mean, obviously it depends on the audience, but I know that in America you work a lot on uh, pounds rather than kilos. I did some translation. So, okay. So I, I, we, we work on that. Do you ever try to lift anybody or bench anybody? <laughs> or does anyone say, oh, can you bench me? All the time. 
absolutely all the time i haven't actually tried it because i just i think it's going to put my wrist in a really bad position to be to try it and can you imagine if i got injured like that my coach would absolutely lose it so it's not worth the risk but i'm sure once i've finished my career and i'm you know still got some strength there'll be some party tricks happening (laughs) this will be like when you're 90 though (laughs) (laughs) i hope not do people ask to arm wrestle you? Yes, they do. Uh, <laughs> do you because I've got, I've got big arms, so they're like, let's arm wrestle. But I'm not very good at arm wrestling because you need core or you need to hold on. And as we've discussed, my core is pretty terrible. So, yeah, and holding on is cheating. So. Do you ever get backlash or negative reaction to what you're doing? I haven't to this point. I know that some people do. I haven't made it onto TikTok yet, mainly because of that. And I don't want people to start, I don't know, all their trolling. Generally speaking, most of my interactions on social media are really positive. But maybe because my social media following is quite small currently, maybe that will change as things get bigger. But I've had a little bit. But generally speaking, it's pretty positive. People are just kind of impressed with how much I can lift. Nutrition. What do you eat? It depends on my goals at that point in time. But always protein is a big priority just to recover from training, that kind of thing. Carbs, obviously, you need for the energy to train. But without the protein, your body's not going to be able to recover. Is there there a lot of, like, boneless chicken breast in your life? (laughs) There is, yeah. (laughs) There is chicken and turkey as well, because it's so lean. Are you a whey protein type? Whey whey shakes? I do. I'd prefer a protein bar myself rather than a, a shake, just because I struggle with the shake sometimes. See, I have this conversation in my house because my husband likes whey, and I say, no way. He likes the protein shakes. I am also a bar person, so I, I hear you on this. Yeah, and I know that there's a lot of added stuff in the bars, so I try to do like food first, but there are times when you just need to get the... the you have to have a snack, and it's easy and convenient, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So w- you've been to the Paralympics, you've been so successful, you're thinking you're going to stay for Paris. What what motivates you to keep going? Well, there's one goal that I've got that's kind of within my sights, and that is the most ever lifted by a British female para power lifter. And it's 136 kilos. So I'm nearly there. So that's one goal that I've got. I don't have a world championship medal, which is a problem for me. And I guess it's just every competition I go to, finding what I want to achieve at that competition. So, for example, I've got the European Championships coming up. I'm current European champion, so I want to retain my title. And then we've got World Championships next year, which I'd like to medal at because I don't have one yet. And then Paris, it will be a case of wanting to get something better than a bronze. So it's just finding goals all the way along. I think being able to lift 140 kilos, I'd really love to get to that. And it's so close, but yet so far. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's going to take a hell of a lot of work. But yeah, that's what I enjoy about it is the challenge and have, finding the ways to get up to those kind of weights. Yeah, I can't even imagine that kind of weight. <laughs> <laughs> How is it to be in an individual sport versus a team sport? Initially, I really struggled with it, not having that team around me because I was so used to having four other girls with me on the court, 11 in the team. And uh, it did take a lot of adjustment because I think that I went to my first competition and I just, yeah, I just, I felt quite isolated. And actually, that's one of the things I now enjoy the most is that I am fully in control of what I achieve rather than having a team around me and the team, all of us needing to perform to achieve something. So I have no one to blame but myself if things go wrong. And yeah, it just took a bit of adjustment over over time. Initially, very difficult there. Excellent. All right. Louise, thank you so much for joining us. First off, parapower lifting, we're just going to start at the basics. So the goal of the sport is pretty easy lift the most weight possible in three tries correct yep that's pretty much (laughs) it summarize they do make it a little bit more difficult with the rules so you have to pause the bar on your chest and you always have to lock out together there have been a couple of rule changes recently but essentially that's the the basic so this is a bench press and you're lying down when you lie on the bench where do you want to physically place your body so when I'm setting up on the bench, I like to have my eyes underneath the bar. And then when I'm pressing, because of the arch that I have, I like to bring the bar down to just below my boobs. And that's because I have quite a wide grip. The width of your grip will actually determine where you want to bring the bar to. So it's a preference thing, but also there's a little bit of science to it. Okay, so the arch, your back will arch. Is that, that what you're talking about? Yeah, I don't have a huge arch, partly due to my disability. I just can't maintain it. But I I do what I can because that helps you retract your shoulder blades, which keeps your shoulders in a safer position um, whilst benching. And it means that you have to press slightly less distance. Oh, okay. That's interesting. I had not realized that mechanics put that back. Grip. (laughs) It's back in my brain because we'll get back to that too. So grip... Is that a personal preference? Does that also depend on how broad your shoulders are or where is it safest to grip? I think there is some preference to it. I have always had quite a wide grip. I have quite wide shoulders. Um, That definitely will make a difference to you. But I know that, for example, some people might have a recurring issue if they have a wider grip, whereas a narrower grip doesn't bring the symptoms on of the issue that they have. So a bit of a preference thing. It's also what you practice. So if you practice a narrower grip, you're going to be better at a narrower grip. Does where you grip the bar help determine how much weight you can put on? Or is it just like, well, my muscles like it when it's narrower versus my muscles like it when it's wider or in my shoulders? It depends what muscles are more developed in you. And, and that's a practice thing. So like a narrower grip, will use more triceps, whereas a wider grip will use more pecs. So it depends what muscles are more developed in you as an individual. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So if you end up, if you're a person that has 
stronger pecs, you want a stronger or wider grip to leverage that the better part of your body and vice versa. If you have something else, a different part of your body, that's more stronger. Yeah. And we will, we will work multiple different grips to develop other areas, but majority of the work we do will be in our competition formal grip. Oh, that's interesting. We're still lying on the bench or getting to lie on the bench. (laughs) (laughs) And and as you said, this is where I like the bar to end up. And I would imagine everybody has their own preference. Yeah, but it's something that I've worked on over the last couple of years is finding that place where I can get a really good pause on my chest. And it's also a good position in relation to where my body is and where I press well from. Okay. So I practice thing a little bit. <laughs> Are there times where it's just like, ow, I, I feel like this is not a good position? Like, I can feel that when I bench press stuff. I'm like, oh, this is not a good position I put my body in. Yeah, yeah. There'll definitely be certain positions and you'll be like, no, that felt wrong. So, <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just got to go with what you feel. <laughs> now, when you compete, you strap yourself to the bench. Does that provide stability? Yeah, for me, it definitely does. I am a paraplegic. I have no use of my legs, no ability to kind of brace through them. So the straps that hold me to the bench just give me that extra stability that I just don't have because of my disability. Do they have regulations around strapping? It's not allowed to be any higher than your hip. It's not allowed to be on your foot. I believe that it's it used to not be allowed to be over your knee joint, but I think that's changed recently. Why would any of those an advantage um I think if you were to come higher up your body so like above hip it would definitely give more stability to people and I think it's just a way of standardizing across all the competitors okay how heavy is the bar 20 kilos 20 kilos okay so walk us through a lift you get yourself on the bench then what Get myself on the bench, line myself up where I normally line up on the bench, lay down, get myself into my body position with my arch, which (laughs) is probably not what most people call an arch, but I try. Um, Set my grip up on the bar and then normally I'll have someone pass the bar to me because another thing with my disability, I, I just really struggle to get it off the racks. So someone will pass the bar and then just take a breath, brace bring the bar down to chest, and then give it everything to get it back up to arm's length. How long do you have to hold it? So in competition, you'll be given a start command. And then once it's on your chest, normally a coach will call a drive call. And then you have to wait until you're given the rack command to get it back in the rack. I know that in able-bodied bench, the referee will also give the drive command. So it's a little bit different for us. Oh, that's interesting. What does a successful lift look like? It just looks very controlled, I think, is the best way to describe it. The main criteria is that you're in control of the bar at all times within the lift. So you're controlling it to your chest and you're controlling the press. So, for example, if one arm is way ahead of the other, you're not fully in control of the lift or that they they deem that you're not. You have to have your elbows locking out together. So I think control and smooth press is a really good way to to differentiate do you use hand grips or wrist wraps uh i use wrist wraps okay what do those do 
So from all my years of basketball, my wrists are pretty knackered. So they just give a little bit more support when you've got such heavy weights. What did wheelchair basketball do to your wrists? Quite as strong as they used to be. And so I use the wrist wraps to just support them while I'm lifting. Okay. Chalk. Do you use it? Where do you place it? How does it help? So I use chalk when my hands get a bit sweaty. If it's a particularly hot or when I get up to big weights, I don't want my hands slipping on the bar. So I tend to put it just on my hands rather than all over the bar and everything. Some people use it in other ways. I'm kind of a minimal user, to be honest. What is the strategy to choosing how much weight you put on the bar at any given point in the competition? So obviously you'll have an idea of where you are in terms of what weight you can lift, uh, that kind of thing. I will normally go for something that's pretty comfortable for my first lift. And then depending on the other competitors, we'll kind of determine what your next lift will be. And you might change what you're planning on lifting on depending on what other people have put on the bar. Depends what your goals for the competition are and what I mean, your chances are of being on that podium. So that will determine somewhat what you attempt to lift. And then in the back room, are you allowed to change that as you see? Like, do you have to submit, this is the weight I'm going to do next? And then as other competitors go, you can see what they lift and swap that out? So you... In, in power powerlifting, you go in starting weight order. You have to submit that and you can only make changes up to five minutes before the first lift. The second lift, once you put it in, you can't change. So the second round. So it's done in rounds. Um, and then the third lift, you can change um, a number of times. I think it's a limited number of times. To be honest with you, that's what I leave my coaches to deal with. I don't really think about <laughs> that side of things. <laughs> I trust them completely with the decisions. (laughs) Do you ever know, like, not, do they tell you what you're going to lift ahead of time? And then, or do they just like get on the bench, Louise, you're going to punt. We're not even going to tell you what you're lifting today. Sometimes, like, I, I always need to know, but I do know that some people actually prefer not knowing and just completely trust that their coaches know what they're doing. I'm a bit of a control freak, so I absolutely have to know what's on the bar (laughs) and what I'm attempting. But I've been in the situation quite a few times where I'm lifting stuff in competition that I've never even attempted in training. So that's quite a daunting prospect. (laughs) I wondered that because what I'm curious about also is how you improve and what you do in the gym, but also like when you're in competition, do you have extra adrenaline that maybe helps do some of these lifts or like how, what do you do for your mindset, especially when there's a weight that you haven't tried before? To be honest, I think the only way to deal with that is to not actually think about the weight, just the process about what you do, how you press it, what you need to focus on to get it pressed I mean, you'll have a feel on the day as to how warm up went, um, how your preparation's gone. So you'll know whether stuff's within your capability or not. Even if you've not done it in training, I think you just have an idea from the amount of training that you've done. So I think it's just a confidence thing and going out there and wanting to beat people. (laughs) 
what do you do to build confidence? For me, that comes from training and working on technique and just generally any so I find working on technique really works for my confidence because then I can go out there and be like well technically I'm very good so get the weight on the bar and I'll use that skill that I've got and do what I can with it for me that that's the the biggest thing I think having a great build up obviously will help and being confident in the weights that you've got or the weights you've done and the, the the preparation that you've done is also really big for confidence obviously it's not always the case you don't always have a good build up so you kind of just have to focus on stuff that is going well and the stuff that you can take confidence from what do you do to work on technique in in training i'm always working on technique so for me pause is the most difficult bit because of my disability i i'm a little bit unsteady and then every now and again i'll like dip to one side that kind of thing so that's the bit that i work on probably more often than anything else and it's just a repetition thing and then making a kind of mental note of how a good rep feels what are some of the things you work on to steady that dip do you have use of all of your abdominals majority i've done quite a lot of work like core work over the years and it has made a big difference to that technical element it's something that i'm gonna have to work on for the entire time i'm powerlifting because my core is quite abysmal but i am trying to make it better and uh, make improvements in that area and I know how fun setups are. They are not. They're not fun. Core work is not fun. Is I absolutely cannot do a setup. Oh. Um. <laughs> so what do you do for core work? So I do like our own little variation of a paloff press. So it's more rotational stuff that benefits for me. And I basically have to strap myself to the bench because otherwise I just don't get any benefit from it. And that's something that we've developed over the years to try and figure out how to to get core work in that's actually productive rather than just doing it for the sake of doing it. Interesting. That's really interesting. And in a way, if I was a coach, that would be an interesting challenge to try to figure that out. You know what I mean? I don't know if it's interesting (laughs) for you to figure it out just (laughs) because I would imagine it would be frustrating to not know what or go through a whole bunch of stuff and have to try to find out what works. Yeah, my coach does enjoy that kind of stuff. So I think uh, it got his brain working. <laughs> we found a good solution. So, How do you get stronger to be able to add more weight to the bar? Like, what are the things you do? So everyone thinks that to bench big, you've got to just bench. But actually, there's a lot of, I do a lot of back work as well. Because your back, like, you just need to be balanced as much as possible. So there's there's a lot of accessory work probably a lot more than I'd like but (laughs) I do it because it makes me a better athlete I don't enjoy it but I do it but I think the the way to progress is well most importantly I think is consistency getting in doing sessions all the sessions that you're required to do by your coach or whoever but when you're in those sessions always try and do something a bit better than last time because if you're constantly doing something a little bit better like 
an extra kilo on the bar or pressing the bar faster, even that is indication of progress. And I think that's something that a lot of people will go to the gym and they'll like tick things off and they'll be like, okay, I've done it. But actually, if you are constantly trying to improve something just a little bit, then you will get stronger just from doing the work. When you finish a lift, what do your muscles feel like? Oh, I mean, it depends on the lift. and It depends how hard it was. Um, there have been times where I've done an absolute grinder of a rep and I've just had to lay there for maybe five, six seconds just to compose myself before I could sit back up again because like, you just put everything into it. And yeah, it's just a full body <laughs> exhaustion sometimes <laughs> that I feel. And then there'll be other, other lifts where I'll be like, well, that moved really well. Okay, great. So <laughs> depends on the scenario. Okay. How long is a training session usually for you? My training sessions are normally two to three hours. Okay. But being a powerlifter, my rest periods are generous, let's say. <laughs> well, I, would, I mean, you need recovery time, obviously. Yeah. Between bench press exercises will normally take four to six minutes. Oh, okay. Um, to give you... It's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, like, accessory stuff will be, like, two or three minutes. So okay. you obviously want to try and get as much out of your bench stuff which is why you take the slightly longer rest so you have very strong back shoulders chest how hard is it to find clothes incredibly difficult <laughs> because nobody caters for somebody with shoulders like mine 90 percent of the time i end up in men's clothes which i hate but every now and again you'll find a brand that actually can cater what I do find is that I normally have to go so big for my shoulders that it's baggy everywhere else. But at least it fits my shoulders. Long sleeve tops, night dress like nice dressy tops. Absolutely not. They're always cutting off my arms. Oh. <laughs> I normally go for vest tops. That's generally my uh, safe bet. You were a wheelchair basketball player. What did you like about wheelchair basketball? Besides the fact that it's cool. That's what, that's what we learned from Tokyo. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I think I started playing it because I was 13 years old and I and my friends played and it was cool. But wheelchair basketball for me just gave me this freedom that I didn't get in everyday life. It was fast. It was skillful. And I just, I just really enjoyed being on the basketball court and spending a lot of time with friends that were on the team, that kind of thing. It was, um, yeah, it was just a really, really enjoyable game for me and you got to go to two paralympics as a wheelchair basketball athlete what were those experiences like so i think the first paralympics i went to it was the first time i'd really had any kind of responsibility within the team so it was quite overwhelming for me and i think maybe a little bit of a blur very enjoyable blur i did enjoy it i think i'm in london was just as a home games was just completely I, I don't know that it'll ever be topped the atmosphere as a, an English or a GB athlete was just phenomenal and yeah London was just a really really special experience like the basketball not so great but just the crowd and the whole experience was amazing what was Tokyo like 
was it part of the goal when you when you switched to powerlifting? It was 2017, so you had a few mm. years. But how? I mean, how long does it take to develop in the sport? And did it help that you were already an elite athlete? It definitely helps that I was already an elite athlete. I started from a 77 and a half kilo bench press. So it's already a really good bench press. And that's from all my years of training in the gym when I play basketball. Tokyo, it being delayed by a year probably did help me in some ways because I was very new to the sport. And I did say in maybe 2019, maybe 2018, that I wanted to medal at the Paralympic Games. And my coach kind of looked at me and went, that's a big goal. No one's achieved that in one cycle. And I was like, I need the big goal. Like, that's what gets me excited is that ridiculous goal. And having that extra year, it was really tough, really tough at times. But it gave me more time to get stronger and... I think it was a blessing and a curse, but it was it was a fantastic games, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I wasn't expecting to enjoy it. I was worried that it was just going to be completely overshadowed by all the COVID stuff. How did they make it not so COVIDy? I mean, it was very COVIDy. We were <laughs> we were in a bubble, and there was a lot of mask wearing, but. It wasn't as restrictive as I was expecting it to be. I was expecting it to be, you can stay in your apartments, you can do this. But essentially, as long as you had a mask on, you could be out of your apartment. You could um, socialise with other people at a distance. So it was very, but I think it was a really good balance between still allowing the athlete experience and keeping people safe. How are the cardboard beds? <laughs> um, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I'm really fussy when it comes to beds, and they had these little. You could move about the mattresses mm-hmm. to make them in a different order, and then they were different firmness. And I was like, "This is just too complicated." I didn't really understand it, to be honest <laughs> with you. Um, they were fine. They were fine. I slept quite well by the end of it, but initially I did struggle. <laughs> yeah, I was in Japan once and, and we were on re- really hard beds in Western hotel, quote unquote, Western hotels, and then <laughs> moved over to futons on the floor. And that was that was took a while for my back to adjust <laughs> to that. But it did. In the run up to Tokyo, how much competition did you have? Very little. <laughs> because... And, and I asked that because your your bronze medal winning lift would have been a Paralympic record. And just people were lifting stuff like crazy at Tokyo, it seemed like. the Yeah, the standard in, in the women's competition especially, from Rio to Tokyo, just absolutely skyrocketed. And my lift would have probably got me a silver or a gold in Rio. So it just shows you how the standards improved over the last couple of years. And it's fantastic to see women just getting confident, being strong. Makes my life a bit harder. But (laughs) I I was going to say, as as you, well, we're of a certain age, but as you age, like how much more difficult is it this quad to 
stay, are you are you going to try for Paris? Um, I'm going to definitely try for Paris. Okay. I think that because I've not been in this sport for very long, there's still progress that I can make. And I think it's to do with, well, I was always told it's to do with training age. So my training age in para powerlifting is actually quite young. So there's more progress that I can still make. But I do say to my coach sometimes that he's got to stop coaching me like I'm a 20-year-old because my body can't cope with this. I'm nearly 40, can't be doing with it. <laughs> do you find as you are getting older that it's tougher? Or do you, do you well, I mean, training the training age bit is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's any science behind that, but there's a bit of a theory there, I guess. <laughs> do, do okay. So, if do you have terrible twos when you're in training? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I do find, as an older athlete, that my body just hurts more. I think so. There's definitely more time with the physio than the younger athletes. But yeah, I mean. I couldn't have imagined that my body would have taken to this sport like it has. It's just been an absolutely insane five years, to be completely honest with you. We feel the same way about our show. Yeah. <laughs> that's how long we've been doing this. Questions, Allison? Well, I'm always interested in injuries. So what's powerlifting to me, the injury would be I drop it on my head. But for someone who actually knows what they're doing, what are the injuries you got to worry about? I definitely try not to drop it on my head. I did a school visit recently and I, I was asked multiple times, what happens if you drop it on you? Well, I train really hard so that I don't drop it on me. <laughs> I mean, I haven't, touch word, had these issues, but um, pecs are a big one um, just because the amount of strain that you put them through for me I actually get a lot of nerve pain and I think that's probably from my basketball days maybe a lot of whiplash that went undiagnosed <laughs> but nerve pain's a really big one for me um and every now and again back like upper back middle back just yeah makes getting into my body position really difficult what's the reaction of people around you when you talk about being a power lifter well the first question is always what can you bench and then when I tell them I can bench 130 kilos they're like oh wow that's more than I weigh I'm like well yeah I'm like third in the world so you'd want to think that I could lift a good amount <laughs> they also I've also been asked like if I say I can lift 130 they're like pounds I'm like no kilos so, yeah, I mean, obviously it depends on the audience, but I know that in America you work a lot on uh, pounds rather than kilos. I did some translation. Okay. <laughs> so I, I, we, we work on that. Do you ever try to lift anybody or bench anybody? <laughs> or does anyone say, oh, can you bench me? All the time. Absolutely all the time. I haven't actually tried it because I just I, I think it's going to put my wrist in a really bad position to be, to try it. And can you imagine if I got injured like that, my coach would absolutely lose it. So it's not worth the risk. But I'm sure once I've finished my career and I'm you know still got some strength, there'll be some party tricks happening. <laughs> this will be like when you're ninety, though. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Do people ask to arm wrestle you? Yes. 
they do. Uh, <laughs> do you because I've got I've got big arms, so they're like, let's arm wrestle. But I'm not very good at arm wrestling because you need core, or you need to hold on. And as we've discussed, my core is pretty terrible. So yeah, and holding on is cheating. So do you ever get backlash or negative reaction to what you're doing? I haven't to this point. I know that some people do. I haven't made it onto TikTok yet, mainly because of that. And I don't want people to start, I don't know, all their trolling. Generally speaking, most of my interactions on social media are really positive. But maybe because my social media following is quite small currently, maybe that will change as things get bigger. But I've had a little bit. But generally speaking, it's pretty positive. People are just kind of impressed with how much I can lift. Nutrition. What do you eat? It depends on my goals at that point in time. But always protein is a big priority just to recover from training, that kind of thing. Carbs, obviously, you need for the energy to train. But without the protein, your body's not going to be able to recover. And, is, there, yeah. is there a lot of like boneless chicken breast in your life? <laughs> there is, yeah. <laughs> there is chicken and turkey as well because it's so lean. Are you a yeah. whey protein type? Whey, whey shakes or? I do I prefer I'd prefer a protein bar myself rather than a a shake just because I struggle with the shake sometimes see I have this conversation in my house because my husband likes whey and I say no way he likes the protein shakes I am also a bar person so I I hear you on this yeah and I know that there's a lot of added stuff in the bars so I try to do like food first but there are times when you just need to get the the you have to have a snack and it's easy and convenient isn't it <laughs> mm-hmm. so w- you've been to the Paralympics, you've been so successful, you're thinking you're going to stay for Paris. What what motivates you to keep going? Well, there's one goal that I've got that's kind of within my sights, and that is the most ever lifted by a British female para power lifter. And it's 136 kilos. So I'm nearly there. So that's one goal that I've got. I don't have a world championship medal, which is a problem for me. And I guess it's just every competition I go to, finding what I want to achieve at that competition. So, for example, I've got the European Championships coming up. I'm current European champion, so I want to retain my title. And then we've got World Championships next year, which I'd like to medal at because I don't have one yet. And then Paris, it will be a case of wanting to get something better than a bronze. So it's just finding goals all the way along. I think being able to lift 140 kilos, I'd really love to get to that. And it's so close, but yet so far. (laughs) It's going to take a hell of a lot of work. But yeah, that's what I enjoy about it is the challenge and finding the ways to get up to those kind of weights. Yeah, I can't even imagine that kind of weight. (laughs) (laughs) How is it? to be in an individual sport versus a team sport? Initially, I really struggled with it, not having that team around me because I was so used to having four other girls with me on the court, 11 in the team. And uh, it did take a lot of adjustment because I think that 
I went to my first competition and I just, yeah, I just, I felt quite isolated. And actually that's one of the things I now enjoy the most is that I am fully in control of what I achieve rather than having a team around me and the team, all of us needing to perform to achieve something. So I have no one to blame but myself if things go wrong. And yeah, it just took a bit of adjustment over over time. Initially, very difficult though. Excellent. Thank you so much, Louise. You can follow Louise on Instagram at Lulu Suggers and on Twitter at Louise Sugden 13. Louise suffered a shoulder injury after we spoke to her. And that, that injury forced her to withdraw from the Commonwealth Games this past summer, and she will not be competing again this season, although right around now is when the European Para Powerlifting Championships are, so hopefully we can throw a link to those in the show notes. Hopefully you can watch the sport in action. So Louise is out for the season. She did have surgery. It seems like it will be a successful surgery and she has a long recovery ahead of her she'll have to wait at least six months before she can start training again so louise hope you have a speedy recovery and that we'll see you back on the platform again Uh, that sound means it's time for our history segment all year long we are looking at albertville 1992 because it is the 30th anniversary of those olympics my turn for a story And we are going to the wonderful world of cross-country skiing. Oh, yes. We have not done this so far. No. And and we're not going to talk about... We're just going to focus on... We're just going to focus on one main player in the women's competition. Her name is Riza Smetanina, who... She was a Soviet skier. And then because this was the first games featuring a non-Soviet union, the unified team, she also competed for that team. She is from the Komi Republic in Siberia, so that obviously a lot of snow, a lot of cold. She became a quite good skier. She was an only child. She focused on sport relentlessly to the point where she, I don't know if she's ever married, to be quite honest, but she didn't have time for a relationship while she was competing. 1992 was her fifth Olympics. And she's also the first athlete to get onto the podium at five different Olympics. <laughs> and this is not a sport that five Olympics is common. Two or three, maybe, but five? No, she started in 1976, medal there, 1980, 1984, 1988, and then 1992. She was a classical specialist in the style, so... Even though she competed a bit in when the free skating style came out in the early 1980s, that was not her best area. So she didn't compete in it very often. Well, she competed in the 1700s. So <laughs> of course she would go with the classical style. <laughs> so at her previous Olympics, she had been doing three to four races each. But at Albertville, she was only doing the 15K and the 4x5K relay. And... She's coming into these games with nine medals under her belt. And the question will be, or the question was, will she become the most decorated winter athlete? First race was a 15K. So this is the first time in Olympic history that the women got a 15K race. Previous to this, they had a 10K race. So she is up against some tough competition 
worked her way up from sixth position throughout the race to finish fourth. Oh, the worst position of all. But then her other chance to medal was in the four by five kilometer relay. Unified team, all stars. They kick it off with Yelena Valba, who had already won five bronzes at 1992. She finished her leg in 14 minutes, 51 seconds, leading Norway by 30, 13 seconds. She passed it to Reza. Reza had a very respectable time of 15.15, but she fell into second place when she stumbled on a turn with 125 meters left to go in the leg, and that allowed Inger Helene Nybreton from Norway to overtake her. So it's looking rough for Reza. But she passed to Larissa Lazutina, who got them back into the lead. More on her in a bit. The anchor was Lyubov Yegorova, who won three golds and five medals in Albertville. She finished her leg one minute faster than Reza had finished, ensuring the team a victory. So Reza has now got 10 Olympic medals. When she won gold, she'd been alive 39 years, 354 days making her the oldest female gold medalist in Winter Olympics history. At the time, I believe, uh, that's been surpassed. She's now fourth on the list. So, because, and, and the reason that is because curling came to be on the program. Right. A lot of curlers. Yes. You have, there are two Swedish curlers and one Canadian ice hockey player ahead of her on this list. <laughs> I know. It doesn't make you go, wow, someone's playing ice hockey when they're in their 40s. So makes my back hurt. Right. But, you know, if you went by birthdays, Reza would be the youngest medalist ever because she was born on February 29th on leap year day and was just about to have her 10th birthday. <laughs> Reza's record held for a couple of more games until 2002, which we'll go back to Larissa Lazutina for this. 1992 was her first Olympics. She kept competing. 98 was her big year. She medaled in five events. She had a total of seven Olympic career medals. She continued on to 2002, would have tied Smetanina's record, but she was caught doping. Disqualified from two, three races. Yes, she was disqualified from three races, two of which she had medaled in. So... She was caught doping after finishing first in the 30K Classic race at 2002. They found that right away. She was stripped of that medal, was initially allowed to keep her other two medals, which would have given her a career total of nine. In 2003, they found more positives. She got stripped of the other two medals, given a two-year ban. She was effectively put into retirement. So all of those doping discoveries in 2002 put... Italian Stefano Belmondo onto the podium. She also had competed in Albertville 1992. So Belmondo is now tied with Cementina, but she had retired. She had first competed in Calgary, and 2002 was her last games. So who was competing in their first Olympics at 2002? Was Merit Bjorgen, who would go on to break Smetanina's net record in 2018 at Pyeongchang where she ended up with 15 medals, most of any Winter Olympian. So 
back to Reza, just to wrap this one up. She talked about retiring, starting at Lake Placid in 1980. <laughs> she actually retired in March 1992. At her farewell party, the government of the Comey Republic gave her the keys to a house in uh, Siktivkar, which is the capital city. The ground floor of that, and she lives there, apparently still. The ground floor is now a museum that you can go and visit. It has honors her career, the careers of other successful skiers from the region, and then the history of cross-country skiing in the last half of the 20th century. Which Reza basically did. Right, right. <laughs> this museum won second place in the all-Russian competitions of museums in the Olympic and sports movement. Which was established in 2010-2011 by the Russian Olympic Committee. She's become a ski coach. She has a ski complex named after her in the city as well. It has cross-country, biathlon, and a hotel. You know, so go and stay. And then, of course, she was a torchbearer for Sochi 2014 throughout her, reason, her, throughout her region. But that is how we got one of the most decorated winter Olympians of all time. It's uh, time to vote for next year's Olympic history games that we will focus on all year. Next year will be a summer games. So we have narrowed it down to three that you will be able to choose from. That will be Beijing 2008 because it's the 15th anniversary of those games. And some of you can now feel old for that. <laughs> Seoul 1988. It's the 25th anniversary of those games. And London 1948 will be celebrating its 75th anniversary in 2023. We will have a poll up in our Facebook group. So join that if you'd like to have some input. It's Keep the Flame Alive Facebook group. Welcome to Shukflastan. It's the time of the show when we check in with our team at Keep the Flame Alive. These are our past guests who make up our country of Shukflastan. Boxer Ginny Fuchs's first professional fight was postponed due to the death of Queen Elizabeth, and it is now scheduled for October 15th at the O2 Arena in London. I Stancers Charlie White and Merrill Davis were inducted into the Michigan Sports Hall of Fame. Author Andrew Marinus's latest book, Inaugural Ballers, was released last week. It is about the first women's basketball tournament in 1976. We recommend you get a copy because you will need it for our show for 2023. And you can get that through bookshop.org slash shop slash flamealivepod. And if you purchase something through that link, that will help support the show financially. The dulcet tones of Jason Bryant were in Belgrade, where he was announcing the 2022 World Wrestling Championships, and he mentioned this is his 25th trip out of the country to announce wrestling. Wow. Good for him. Man, that's really, that's really cool where a sport can take you. Table tennis player Melissa Tapper was part of a dominant Australian team that competed at the 2022 ITTF Oceania Championships. Millie took home bronze in mixed doubles and gold in the women's team event. At the roller skating Pan American Championships, Aaron Jackson won gold in every pack sprint. So that's 500 meters, one lap. 1,000 meters, and a silver in the 100 meters. She was also selected to carry the U.S. flag in the opening ceremonies and recite the athlete's oath. 
Modern pentathlete Joe Muir finished second in the women's competition at the Modern Pentathlon European Championships, and she was also part of the first place winning women's team. There is a groan because there's a slight update on the Camilla Valieva situation. So Christine Brennan from the USA Today reported that, I guess the, the investigation is over, but Christine talked with Rusada public relations manager, Galina Kovrova, and who said in an email that hearings will take place in late September or early October. So what this means, we don't know. We don't really know when a final decision will be made. And if there is a final decision, it will likely be appealed, which would go to the card of arbitration for sport. And this is all with regards to the figure skating team competition in which Camila Valieva competed, even though she had been, dis- or it was after the team competition that they discovered the doping, right? Correct. It was reported the day after the team competition had been finished that she had been guilty of a doping violation back at the Russian Nationals. So the story will continue to go on for quite some time, which is kind of tough for anybody else in that competition who may get a medal upgrade or has to uh, just knowing what's going on with the final results. Well, they don't even have any medals, so never mind a medal upgrade. Oh, yeah, that's true. They they didn't even have a ceremony for this. I forgot that. (laughs) Hey, we have ticket information for Paris 2024. This is exciting. So the Paris 2024 organizing committee made an announcement on September 20th with regards to the ticket sales timeline. So here you go if you've been waiting. From December 1st of this year to January 31st of next year, there will be a registration window to sign up for a ticket lottery. And if you are a member of Le Club, you will have priority for this first round of sales. And joining Le Club is free. It's a website that you put some information in and then you are a member. (laughs) And you get email. Yes. Yes. So it's free. You get emails. And then February 13th, 2023, this is 48 hours before tickets go on sale. If you are in that lottery and you win, you will get a notification that you will be able to take part in the first round of ticket sales. Then from February 15th through 18, lottery winners will have 48 hours to purchase tickets. You will get like a package deal where you get three different sessions and you can choose from 32 sports on the program, but apparently no tickets will be available for surfing in Tahiti. Expect prices to vary based on popularity of the sport and the type of session it is. So a preliminary session will be a lot cheaper than a finals and gymnastics is going to be a lot more expensive and swimming will be a lot more expensive than say probably taekwondo just depends on what the demand is there uh february 19th the general public will be allowed to purchase ticket packages and then in may 2023 single tickets will go on sale 
This apparently will also use a lottery system. Opening and closing ceremony tickets will be in this sale. So tickets for ceremonies will start at 90 euros. These are for tickets in the low keys between Pont d'Austerlitz and Pont de Lina, and they will go up to 2,700 euros. So currently tickets for the upper keys are free of charge, although some French websites are reporting that the organizing committee is still discussing ticketing for the ceremonies. Now, I'm going to interject here and go, oh, hey, when you just decided that there will be 600,000 people watching watching the opening ceremonies on the Seine, and then you decide to ticket it, wow, you're going to bring in some money. Reports are, though, that the organizing committee is still discussing ticketing for the ceremonies. And then at the end of 2023, any leftover tickets are going to go on sale. Now, expect tickets to be 100% digital. Prices for single tickets are going to start at 24 euros. But who knows how many of those seats will be available, so they will go up in price. There will also be an official resale platform if you need to transfer your tickets to somebody. And you will be able to transfer the names on the tickets to another person as well. So you won't be stuck with tickets if you cannot go to an event all of a sudden. If you're local to France, there will be 1 million tickets available for local people at special pricing. These will be for local authorities, and I'm not quite sure what that means, but they're probably being sold to specific populations, like people who volunteer in sport a lot, people who are the education sector, and people with disabilities. So those groups of people will have, uh, in France, will have another bucket of tickets to pull from. There will be hospitality packages, which is tickets plus experiences. They'll be provided by On Location, which is the official provider of hospitality packages. These contain guaranteed tickets to most of the sporting events, as well as additional services like in-venue hospitality, accommodation, and tourist activities. Sales for those began in fall 2022. Packages are first come, first served. Tickets for the Paralympics will go on sale in fall 2023, but there's no more details about that process yet. So again, if you want a better chance of getting tickets, join the club. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And also on our website, flamealivepod.com slash Paris, we have a lot of information there as well, and we will keep updating it as we get more information. So check that out if you have just general questions about the Paris games. You know what word you did not say? What? Co-sport. I did not say co-sport. We're not dealing with authorized ticket resellers anymore. So this was a whole process. If you're new to Olympic ticketing, it used to be that the organizing committee would contract with ticket resellers and there would be about nine of them who all had different territories around the globe. And those resellers got a certain block of tickets. And they sold them. And so you had to go through their ticket lotteries and deal with their pricing. And you, well, you'd get ticket, you'd pay what was the price of the ticket, but you also had to pay a co-sport fee on top of it. So this is the first games where the organizing committee is managing the ticketing process itself. So we will see how this works because they now have to manage it for the world, but it could be a better process. I would expect it would be cheaper for 
consumers. I hope too. I mean, I I would imagine you're still going to pay some kind of service fee to to cover the cost of the platform. But I think because it's, I, I believe it's built from Alibaba, which is a top sponsor of the IOC. So hopefully this is a process that will uh, make ticketing easier or, and, and I don't want to say more transparent, but at least more understandable because you're dealing with the demand of the entire world at the same place. Although hopefully that won't knock the system down either. We'll see. But, oh, one of the things, so uh, the IOC executive board met last week and in one of the confer- press conferences afterwards, Executive Director Christophe Duby got into talking about cost optimization for Paris 2024. And he said, oh, we're getting into some details of cost optimization of where we could shift things around. And one of the places they were looking at was accredited seating. And I know that listener Nick had brought this up, I believe, in the Facebook group. And wondering why so much seating, or else we talked, no, or we may have talked about it on a a call-in show. Yes. Okay, that's where it was. We talked about it on a call-in show. And why did the press have so many seats in a venue allocated to them, especially if they weren't always used? So they, the organizing committee might be able to look at accredited seating understand where the press is going and resell seats right into the end. So if they are not going to cover as much of, say, you know, maybe there were 200 seats allocated to artistic swimming and they're only finding that 75 members of the press are showing up. Well, they might be able to reallocate that unused space and sell it off as tickets to the population. What I think will be very interesting with that is what we found in Beijing and and what we did in Beijing, we didn't necessarily go to entire events. Sometimes we would pop around. So what happens if you oversell an event where basically you take away press seats, but then say for the final round, press wants to come in, but there are no press seats? That would be interesting. Would there would they start making a press needs to sign up? And there are some events where, especially at the Olympics, that would be ticketed anyway because demand was too high for the space that they already have. That that didn't happen at Beijing because there weren't as many press there as there usually is. But I would imagine if you're looking at finals of gymnastics, finals of swimming, finals of athletics, you're going to have a lot of demand for some of those sessions from the or a lot of demand from the press for some of those sessions. So I bet they are going to, they would re- adjust allocations accordingly. Or or they would ticket that for the press and say, you need to sign up for those tickets. And, and if you get one, great. If you don't, you don't. So it'll be interesting to see if that actually happens in their cost optimization stuff. Also in the uh, executive board meeting, they approved venue changes for Paris 2024. So the Eiffel Tower will now host beach volleyball for the Olympics and soccer five aside for the Paralympics, which, oh man, what a venue is that going to be? The Place de la Concorde will be renovated before Paris 2024. The uh, Inside the Games reports that they will, the 
that there are going to be light replacements, uh, repairs on two of the statues and fountains, and repairs to the drainage system. Uh, Lord Sebastian Coe, head of World Athletics, is now lobbying to get some athletics events put outside of the Stade de France, which is where athletics is going to happen. So he wants to put some events downtown to democratize the sport and bring more attention to it. Like they've had many diamond league events in athletics that uh, have had things like pole vault in a downtown street or shot put in a downtown street. And it, it can be very exciting competition. There's a different energy. More people can go by and it raises a lot of awareness for the sport. But I think this is kind of a curveball thrown at the organizers with less than two years to go. And we should say that the athletes really enjoy this. This has been very popular among the athletes in the Diamond League. So Sebco is not just pulling this out of his hat saying, wouldn't this be fun? The athletes do support this. But where are you going to put this in the middle of Paris? Right. And in play, I mean, and I don't know if the area that's the urban park would even have space for it. But yeah, where do you put it that you haven't already blocked off traffic? You long jump over the Seine. <laughs> you pole vault over the Eiffel Tower. I mean, I guess they could make it really into the city. Could you imagine a long jump? How, how far into the Seine could you jump? <laughs> well, remember we talked about ages ago where we talked about some of the extinct sports and it was diving for distance? Oh, right. right. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, they would have to... They, and and he said, Co did say he knew it posed challenges in terms of security and cost, but you know it was really in line with the IOC vision. But I I and I understand that you want to see get as many eyeballs on your sport as possible, but like it, the cost, you you got to think of the cost at this point because you would need signage and a way to have people watch. So that's cost of bringing in bleachers. And what do you have for like changing rooms and things like that? Well, they already have the sand for beach volleyball near the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> so I'm thinking lawn jump is kind of, you're halfway there. Just just in, in between games and the beach volleyball. Okay, just put down the, the lines for the lawn jump and here you go. Absolutely. Why not? <laughs> You could charge more for the ticket because you're getting two sports. <laughs> so we'll see what happens with that. Although I wouldn't be surprised if those ideas are being taken to 2028. And maybe you'd see something like that for LA 2028. Would be interesting. We have some news about the torch relay. Thanks to our Shuklastani Ken Hanscom. Coca-Cola has become an official sponsor of the relay, along with BPCE, and there's supposed to be a third sponsor, but they're still negotiating that contract. There are going to be at least 60 departments involved with the torch relay department is akin to a state or a province, and those departments have already committed to being in the relay. Total numbers should be known by November. So right now they expect the relay to last 70 to 80 days and go through about 700 cities. We should look for the final route and torch design in mid-2023. 
So this article that he mentioned, which was from lymphodurable.fr, also talked about the Coke situation that's going to be at Paris 2024. And I I thought this was more interesting than the actual Torch Relay update. Because... <laughs> so, Will you have your Diet Coke? That's all we need to know. I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. Good. But if you go, expect drinking fountains, returnable glass bottles, reusable cups and returnable cups there will be recycled plastic bottles in use there will be no cans of coke products so i thought all of that was very very interesting they're trying to be as eco-friendly as possible with this situation and then mark your calendars because the inaugural paralympic day will be on october 8 at place de la bastille in paris they will have exhibitions some try the sport options cultural and artistic events and we know what October 8 is. It's your anniversary. It's your birthday. <laughs> what a better way. Day. I know. So a little bit of news from LA 2028. The IOC Coordination Commission visited LA and uh, checked things out. And of course, things are going very well in the organization and planning. Nothing super noteworthy except for what Chuck Lestani, Rich Perlman reported in the Sport Examiner this week. Uh, and this I loved because a reporter from KCRW, which is a local national public radio station, asked how the 2028 games were going to resolve the cost of living and homelessness issues. <laughs> and the reporter got two answers, one from IOC member and coordination commission chair, Nicole Herberts. And she said that the games adapt to a city. They don't expect the city to adapt to the games. They don't want to take over a city. They want to incorporate themselves into a city. And she said, quote, we're not so naive to think the games are going to be solving these issues, but they have to be addressed. That's a fact. And then the organizing committee chair, Casey Wasserman, said, quote, the challenges that we face with homelessness in the city are real. And if we sit around hoping that the Olympics will do something to fix those or is going to do something to make them worse in 2028, we failed this community. We as leaders in this community have a responsibility to deal with those problems today because if the Olympics weren't here in 2028, those problems exist today and they will continue to exist unless we deal with them. If we just closed up shop and went today, homelessness and the cost of living will still exist and they will still exist in 2028. And no one should be confused about this. I think this makes a lot of sense in the sense of there's the Olympics. That is something that the city really wants to do. And all cities across the United States have a big problem with homelessness and cost of living, not just LA. And that needs to be dealt with like Casey Wasserman said, you don't wait another six years to try and deal with it. You deal with it now. And is the Olympics going to make it better or worse? It could make it better in the sense of, are you building a lot of facilities that could be used for low-income housing? Could it make it worse because the city is spending money on the Olympics and not on domestic issues? Yes. But it's really two different things. Right. And it's I, I find it interesting when you get to the no Olympics people who protest basically saying that the Olympics 
pushes the homeless out. They do kind of cover up whatever homeless problem they can so people don't see the blight when they're in for the games. But the Olympics is not the source of cause of homelessness, and it's not going to be the solution to homelessness in any city. So it's to me, it's really a naive argument to make. And like you mentioned, are they diverting resources from homelessness to put the Olympics on? Who knows? Because we found so many times that money for many necessary infrastructure projects does not get allocated and those projects do not happen until they have the deadline of the games to make them happen. And we are not so naive as to think that the Olympics doesn't bring some corruption, doesn't bring misspending of government funds. I mean, we know that. But so do a lot of things. Right. And I do think it's unfair to blame a city's problems or to stake a city's rebirth on the Olympics either way. Exactly. Exactly. So back to the IOC and its EB meeting. A couple of things on National Olympic Committees were decided. So Guatemala has had some issues with the government interfering in the National Olympic Committee's doings. So the IOC has suspended them. Just the announcement of that made the committee behind the Central American Games 2022, which Guatemala was supposed to host with Costa Rica, this decision said, we're going to cancel the games. And this is a little bit of frustration for athletes because this was going to kick off their Paris 2024 qualification bids. So that's kind of a rough situation for Guatemala. India, huh, boy, they postponed elections in 2021. They have a lot of internal problems, a lot of, a lot of governance shortcomings. So the IOC has given them a final warning. And in December, when they meet again, they could suspend India. And the suspension basically means that they don't get funding from the IOC, which has got to be very important for their bottom lines. For India specifically, the IOC was supposed to have its session meeting, its next session meeting in India in May 2023. That ain't happening now. The IOC has postponed its session meeting until the fall of 2023. And they'll decide later whether this session will take place in India or not. So the interesting thing about that to note is because at this session meeting was when they were going to announce which city would host the 2030 Winter Olympics. That has now been pushed back to whenever this session will take place. India just doesn't seem to learn its lesson. It's been suspended at least once or twice before that I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, I guess history is doomed to repeat itself. Are all NOCs run by middle school girls who are just testing <laughs> their parents? <laughs> well, you're not going to take my phone away. You're just threatening it. Oh, yes, I am. I mean, come on. <laughs> Speaking of suspensions. So one of the reporters from Inside the Games mentioned, oh, hey, since you've been suspending people, what's up with North Korea? And they are suspended. The response was that the suspension is supposed to end at the end of 2022. The IOC has made contact with North Korea, and hopefully they will be able to meet up and discuss 
what is going on with the North Korean situation so as to find a pathway back into good graces. Also, the IOC also announced that it has approved the creation of an Olympic forest network. So they wanted to have an Olympic forest nearby. They wanted this around the world. Hopefully in a couple of months, they will plant the first trees in the first forest. But look for more news on that. Is this how they're making contact? The trees are talking to each other? I don't know. (laughs) Message whistles through the leaves kind of thing. (laughs) And finally, Bach is going to visit Egypt because Egypt is keen on hosting 2036, which that was also a Rich Perlman sports examiner note. The country has been investing a lot of money in sports facilities since 2015, including a stadium, two arenas, and a velodrome. So what do you think about a games in Egypt? I think it would be fantastic to have a games in Africa. I think it's the only place the games have not gone, should, but there's a lot of issues with going to the countries in North Africa. Yeah, I mean, I I have not looked at the aftermath of when South Africa hosted the World Cup in 2010, because that was the first time that FIFA had put the World Cup in South Africa. So, and that was a huge issue back then. So I kind of wonder how that affected the country and and how the organization of that went as well. Because obviously you don't want a repeat of Rio. Right. And you don't want to have an issue like we would have had. Now. So when Beijing was awarded 2022, the other choice was Kazakhstan. And there's now fighting in Kazakhstan. So we couldn't have had 2022. And not that Egypt is Kazakhstan, but they had a coup and a revolution not that many years ago. And is this really the best time to make that choice? I mean, obviously, 2036 is a long way off. And I would think for that kind of region, you'd have to go back to that seven-year awarding timescale because it's still so tumultuous. Yeah, that would be interesting. Gosh, can you imagine the backdrop of the pyramids? Everybody would be just beside themselves. Well, you got sand for beach volleyball in spades. (laughs) So we will keep an eye on that. But that's something to keep in mind. Who knows what will happen? All right, that will do it for this week. Let us know what you think of para powerlifting. And also make sure you get on our Facebook group and vote for which historical Olympics we will do next year. You can email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. You can hit us up on social at flamealivepod or join the conversation and vote for next year's Historic Olympics in the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we'll be talking with Blake Hughes, who is a former competitive ski jumper and now the director for the American Women's Ski Jumping Team. So we'll learn a lot more about ski jumping. And oh my gosh, we've got we've got talk on the ski jumping suits galore. So get excited for that because that was a good conversation. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.